You are a priest. Amen. Whether, Amen. whether you're a man, a woman, or sometimes even a little child, you are a priest. And we're going to look today at what that means. Does that mean you wear a bathrobe and you're not allowed to get married? Does that mean lots of things? Uh, there are lots of cultures that have priests. What does it mean? And uh, we're going to be looking at it today. I'll give you a little heads up about what we're going to be talking about. Um, we're going to discover what priests are all about. We're going to look at the history of priests in national Israel and in the Christian church at large. We're going to compare the job descriptions of Roman Catholic priests, Protestant pastors, and Messianic Jewish rabbis, and that's going to be interesting. I'm going to invite you to join a revolution, so just be emotionally prepared for that. And we're going to unpack the Hebrew term for priest, and we're going to talk about how you can accomplish your mission as a priest, and how we can structure our communities to enable each of us to function in that capacity. So, you ready to go for it? Yes. Okay, great. So, in this parasha, this Torah portion, in Exodus chapter 19, uh, it's like the pinnacle of this story. Uh, the hero sweeps in and rescues the fair maiden from the villain. There's a showdown. The hero wins, and he, uh, he sweeps the fair maiden away to the wilderness, where he proposes to her. And um, these are the words of his proposal. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own special treasure among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those were the words of the proposal. And the fair maiden resp responded with a resounding yes. <laughs> so we are going to be really keying in on this concept of the people of God being called as a kingdom of priests. Uh, I'd like to start with looking at some history and looking at that Hebrew term to see what we can, what we can get out of it. Uh, the Hebrew term for kingdom of priests is mamlechet kohanim. Everybody say mamlechet kohanim. Now, in Hebrew, a king is a melech. Everybody say melech. You know that from the famous melech ha'olam phrase in most of the blessings. Um, God is melech ha'olam. Um, that comes from the verbal root malach. Everybody say malach. Which means to reign as a king, to rule as a sovereign, to give leadership as a national monarch, all of those ideas. That, that's the verb malach. So a melech is a king who functions in that capacity. A mamlacha is his dominion. It is the, it's the parameters of his kingly reign. Everybody say mamlacha. If you want to transliterate that in English, you would transliterate it M-A-M-L-A-C-H-A, Mamlacha. And uh, this, is, this is the classic Hebrew word for kingdom. Uh, it's, it's used to describe Og's um, to describe Nimrod's kingdom, Abimelech's kingdom, Og's kingdom, Saul's, David's, Solomon's kingdoms, and quite a few kingdoms after that also. It's kind of the, the standard Hebrew word. In later Hebrew, a term was developed, Malchut. Everybody say Malchut. And that means like the reign of. And uh, generally in the Jewish world today, you would, if you were to talk about the kingdom of God, for instance, you'd talk about the Malchut Elohim, the kingdom of God. And that's more has to do with his, his active reigning as compared to like his government. But uh, mamlacha is the classic Hebrew term. Um, you will recognize this term mamlacha from the Hebrew version of the Lord's Prayer that we sing. Remember the last line? Ki lecha ha For yours is the kingdom. And actually, that last phrase from the Lord's Prayer is an adaptation of a prayer of King David in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, where he says to God, yours is the mamlacha, yours is the kingdom. He also says, yours is the gavura, the power, and the tifera, the, the glory or, or beauty. So that's a, that's a Hebrew word that is spattered all across the, uh, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. 
So that's that term, mamlacha. Now if you're saying kingdom of, then you say mamlechet. Everybody say mamlechet. That means kingdom of. And then what's the Hebrew word for a priest? You should know this one. A Kohen, that's correct. You could spell that K-O-H-E-N. Um, sometimes there's a last name. It's spelled C-O-H-E-N, as in the case of, uh, let's say, Leonard Cohen. So um, the plural of Cohen is Kohenim. And so if you want to say kingdom of priests in Hebrew, you say Mamlechet Kohenim. So um, that was your Hebrew lesson for today. Free little bonus. I'm a Hebrew teacher, so I, I, I basically can't help myself, right? I, uh, I want to read to you a bit of commentary on this phrase from two uh, classic Christian commentators who are also lovers of Hebrew and uh, lovers of Israel. Uh, firstly, I'll read you a com some comments from uh, Franz Delitz's trans uh, commentary. Uh, he and uh, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty famous. He was a Christian Hebraist from the 1800s. In fact, when we sing the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew, it's his translation into Hebrew that we sing. He says, A kingdom of priests could never denote the fellowship existing in a kingdom between the king and the priests, but only a kingdom or commonwealth consisting of priests, i.e., a kingdom, the members and citizens of which were priests, and as priests constituted the mamlacha, in other words, were possessed of royal dignity and power. So he's saying this is a kingdom that is composed of priests, and each one of these priests functions in a kingly capacity. Uh, John Gill, another uh, commentator who had a love for the Hebraic texts. John Gill was a Reformed Baptist preacher from the 1700s. He was like the spiritual grandfather of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached in Spurgeon's church about a century before Spurgeon. And I love his commentaries. He was a real pioneer in um, making those connections between the, um, the Gospels and their Hebrew uh, Hebrew cultural background and uh, the Hebrew texts that surrounded them from the Jewish world. So um, I'll read to you a little passage from, from, uh, from Dr. Gill here also. He says, Okay, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Instead of being in a state of servitude and bondage, as they had been in Egypt, they should be erected into a kingdom, become a body politic, a free state, a commonwealth governed by its own laws, and those laws of God's making. Yea, they should be a kingdom to him, and he be more immediately the king of them, as he was not of others, the government of Israel being a theocracy. And this kingdom should consist of men that were priests, who had access to God, served him, and offered sacrifice to him, or of men greatly esteemed and honored as priests were in those times. Jarki, which is what old Christian commentators called Rashi. I don't have a clue why they called Rashi Jarki, but that's what they called him. So we'll just say Rashi interprets it, a kingdom of princes, as the word sometimes signifies. The subjects of this kingdom were princes, men of a princely spirit, and these princes, like those of the king of Babylon, who boasted they were altogether kings. And, like the Roman senators, of whom the ambassador of Pyrrhus said that he saw at Rome as many kings as he saw senators. And here, and so here, all the Targums render it kings and priests. So, basically the same idea as Delich. This is a kingdom composed of priests. A kingdom composed of priests that functioned each one as a king. And uh, interestingly enough, you mentioned the Targums. Those are translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic. In Aramaic, they just simply call that a kingdom of kings and priests. So having read a little commentary on that passage, I'll give you a, an overview, a historical overview of priests all the way from Adam on. Now this is interesting. Exodus chapter 19 Verse 22 mentions priests before the ten words forgiven from Mount Sinai and before the Levitical priesthood was set up. Did anybody notice that? Exodus 19.22, the Creator is giving instructions to Moses and he says, Also let the priests who come near to Yahweh consecrate themselves or else Yahweh will break out against them. He's talking about priests before the Levites were instituted as priests. That's interesting. Also in Genesis chapter 15, we see a priest of El Elyon, of the highest God, showing up on the scene, out of the blue, unannounced, it doesn't give any background details about him, named uh, Malki Tzedek. 
which means righteous king. And uh, here's a priest long before the Levitical priesthood was instituted. I think you could probably actually say that Adam was the first priest. Because a priest is someone who represents God, who, um, who functions as a representative. And that's basically what Adam did. Adam was given dominion over planet Earth. Adam represented the creator of the universe. So you could say that Adam functioned as a priest. Um, from Adam all the way to Moses, the firstborn son was the priest of the family or the priest of the clan. Um, basically, the firstborn son would be groomed for leadership from an early age. Uh, he was given a double portion of the inheritance, not because, he, uh, because people thought that he should just get an extra cut, but because when you're in a position of serving the family or the community, when you're in a position of leadership like that, you need extra resources, whether it be uh, extra time, extra financial resources, or just extra emotional and mental energy. That comes with leadership. So um, you, can, you can see that with these priests that ran all the way from Adam through Noah to the time of Moses. I think there's a practical lesson there. If you have people in a community who are serving like heavy duty, that community, if you have um, elder types who are really working hard for the congregation, they're kind of functioning in that capacity and they may need extra resources. So we want to be sensitive to that as communities and make sure they have the resources they need, just like the firstborn in that ancient era um, needed those resources. Now, this is rather interesting. We had mentioned how from Adam until Moses, the firstborn was the priest. In Moses' generation, beginning in Numbers chapter 3, the Levites replaced the firstborn as the priests. Uh, interestingly enough, they numbered the firstborn, and then they numbered the Levites, and they came out to almost exactly the same tally. And so Yahweh said, we will just take the tribe of Levi as the priests instead of the firstborn. Now, Several centuries later, King David emerged on the scene. I think it was him that wrote a very messianic psalm, Psalm 110. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David prophesied of the Messiah and, and said the Messiah would be a priest. And he would belong to a priestly order. But it would not be the Levitical order. He would belong to an older order, to the original order that stretched all the way from Adam through Noah to the time of Abram and Melchizedek. He would belong to the order of Melchizedek. And, sure enough, several centuries after that, Yeshua, God's anointed, showed up on the scene. And he functioned as a priest, but it was kind of out of the box. It wasn't according to the Levitical system that he functioned. It was according to that really old order that Melchizedek was a part of. And um, the author of a letter to the early ethnically Hebrew believers, you could say the early Messianic Jews, he really latched onto this concept in the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he pointed out that Yeshua is the Kohen Hagadol. He's the high priest of our confession. So we have a high priest, even when there's no temple standing, even when the Levitical priesthood is temporarily out of a job, we have a high priest, and his name is Yeshua. And that was very reassuring to the early believers when the Romans came, Romans came through and decimated everything. Hebrews was a very prophetic epistle in that regard. In Hebrews chapter five, chapters 5 to 7, the author really breaks down the implications. What does it mean that Yeshua is our Kohen Hagadol, our high priest? How does this work with the Levitical priesthood? And uh, we're not going to go into too many details there. Just to say that Yeshua is a high priest, and if you are a follower of Yeshua, then you are a member of his priestly order. That's correct. That's actually the next one. One of Yeshua's guys, Shimon Kepha, or Simon Peter, wrote in his epistle to disciples of Yeshua that were scattered out there in the diaspora, who, uh, who largely came from non-Jewish backgrounds, who were ex-hardcore pagans, and this is what he said to them in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. So did you get that? God said to Israel on Mount Sinai, and you shall be to me a mamlechet kohenim, a kingdom of priests. And here's Yeshua's emissary speaking to the early Yeshua movement and saying, that's you. Now, 
Sometimes people today would look at that and say, oh my, that sounds like replacement theology. Oh my, it sounds like Simon Peter is saying those early believers were replacing Israel. No, au contraire, I would call that inclusion theology. What God started with Israel, he was bringing the Gentiles into. The mission of Israel to be a kingdom of priests, God was opening to the nations to come into. Did that replace Israel? No. Did they join Israel to some degree? Yes. Um, there's also, we'll, we have, we'll have time for discussion after, that's, that's how, we'll, how we'll do it. But in um, Yesh, another one of Yeshua's guys, Yochanan, as an old man exiled to an island that was kind of like the ancient equivalent of Alcatraz, the island was called Patmos, he wrote this about Yeshua, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. It's in the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. So Yeshua pulled it off. Yeshua came through. He fulfilled that original intent that was stated at Mount Sinai. Now, you know, here's an interesting question, and I can't say I have an answer, but what if? What if the golden calf debacle never happened? What if instead of the people saying, Moses, you just deal with God for us. We just can't handle the fire. What, what if? Could it, be that, what, what, could it be that maybe God would have filled every one of his people with his spirit? That every one of his people would have become a functioning king in his kingdom? That every one of his people would have been raised up as a priest from the very beginning? I don't know. We can't really read into it. What we do know, though, is that the advent of the Mashiach, Yeshua, he did fill every one of his people with his spirit so that they could rule with him on planet Earth. He did raise up every one of those people into his priesthood to function in that capacity. And uh, we'll be looking at some of the practical ramifications of that in a minute. Here's a little side question. Do believers in Yeshua, who are part of that really old priestly order that Melchizedek was a part of, do they replace the Levitical priesthood? Do they abrogate the Levitical priesthood? It's a good question. Can there be two priesthoods functioning at the same time? My answer would be, I believe, yes. And this is why. There are certain prophetic chapters in the Hebrew Bible that get very little airtime in the Christian world today that are basically never preached on because if they're read literally, it will overturn some, some pop theology and some, um, some current trends in terms of church practice. They're descriptions of what the world's going to look like when Yeshua comes back. They are detailed descriptions of the kingdom of God when the king returns. And they describe things like the last two chapters of Isaiah, God regathering the people of Israel to the land of Israel and choosing some of them to be priests and Levites. Isaiah 66 hasn't happened yet. And in that chapter, God talks about choosing some people to be priests and Levites. This is future. Interesting. Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 describe in great detail a temple that has yet to have been built. My guess is that we'll, all of these chapters will come true when Yeshua comes back. We've talked about this many times in, uh, in, in our uh, discussions, but my, my assumption from, that, from those chapters, Ezekiel 40 to 48, is that the Levites are not out of a job yet. Because actually, Ezekiel 40 to 48 talks about the Levites functioning again, about the priests, the sons of Aaron, doing their job again, serving God in the Holy Temple. So I wouldn't be too quick to say they're out of a job permanently and um, all that stuff is done away with just based on these prophetic chapters um, some people would read Hebrews chapter 7 and there are a couple ways to interpret Hebrews chapter 7 one of those ways would be to say the Levites are permanently out of a job description all that stuff is done away with that is one way of reading those chapters however it's not the only way there is a way of reading those chapters that would suggest that the Melchizedek priesthood is where it's at. It's the one that Yeshua is the head of, but there still is a place for the Levitical priesthood, and they're not phased out yet. Um, there's one place where it talks about a change of the priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7. Um, there, there are some early church fathers that suggested that Hebrews was originally written in Hebrew. You'd think that would make sense, eh? Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, there, are, there are some manuscripts that some people believe were the original Hebrew documents of the epistle to the Hebrews. Could be. Whatever the case may be. If you look at the language describing the change of the priesthood, the root there in the Hebrew language is for the number two. It has the connotation of doubling something or talking about a second one. 
So when it talks about changing the priesthood, in Hebrew that doesn't necessarily mean simply changing it from Levitical to the Melchizedekian. It can simply be saying there are two priesthoods here, and they're different, but they both, both have their own function. So um, my, my personal opinion is when Yeshua comes back, we're probably going to see the temple rebuilt. We're probably going to see the Levitical priesthoods functioning, like it says in Ezekiel 40 to 48 and Isaiah 66. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, death will be permanently done away with, abolished, and there will be no temple after that. That's what we read in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. That's my understanding. Um, on, on a practical note, like, really, we live in Saskatchewan, Canada, so it doesn't really matter either way. You know, we, we have a job here to do this next week in serving our families, praying for our community, uh, just being faithful with the mission, right? So th some of this stuff is a little bit theoretical. It's talking about stuff that could happen a long time in the future. But I just wanted to put that in there as a side note. So um, here's, here's what I would suggest to you as just a practical application. If the Jewish people succeed in rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount and reinstituting the Levitical priesthood, just don't speak against it. I would encourage you just to stay neutral. Because, you know, that's a mission that God gave the Jewish people. It's not your mission, actually. So if they go ahead and rebuild the temple, just let the Jewish people do that, and I would encourage you just to stay neutral. I would encourage every Gentile believer just to stay neutral on that one. And just to pray for the nation of Israel. That would be a functional thing. I am... Um, this is interesting. There, there is the occasional paradox or kind of a quandary in, um, in the narrative of Israel's history. Um, for instance, Elijah. Elijah was a prophet, and he was not from the tribe of Levi, but he built an altar and he offered sacrifices. At first glance, that would appear to be a violation of Torah. Because, number one, it wasn't in Jerusalem, and number two, the guy wasn't a Levite. How do we explain this? My suggestion would be, Elijah was functioning as part of that Melchizedek priesthood, the really old one. That would be my suggestion. And there are other examples of that. Moses, I would suggest, would be functioning in that capacity also. So anyway, that's just a little side note about a Levitical priesthood and my, my take on it. If we want to jump back to history, um, in the early Yeshua movement, at the beginning, every believer was viewed as a priest, based, for instance, on 1 Peter chapter 2. Around um, in the early 100s, there was this move towards developing a caste system with the clergy on one side and the laity on the other side. And there was this dependence that was beginning to be developed of a need for the clergy. Um, there was one early church father, and he was a great man in the faith. He laid his life down for Yeshua. And um, on his en route to martyrdom, he wrote a series of letters to Yeshua communities, and uh, he really placed a lot of emphasis on the bishop. Over and over, he said, the bishop, the bishop, you need to make sure you, you listen to the bishop. The bishop must be present for your functions. You cannot um, take the Eucharist without the bishop, for instance. You, um, you can't have baptisms, etc., without the bishop. Basically, uh, a gathering without the bishop present is an illegal gathering. This was a trend that began to be pushed in the early 100s. Uh, by the year 200 or so, in the early church fathers, um, the leadership of the Yeshua movement, of the Christian church, began to be called priests. They began to use the term priests for the leadership of early um, communities of disciples. In the early 300s, Constantine came on the scene. He invited all the bishops from these different regions to join him for a big council. Uh, Jewish bishops were, interestingly enough, um, really not welcome at that. And uh, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with church history. Uh, Constantine's, um, what he called his new Roman religion, began to materialize. And there was a priesthood that evolved over time in Constantine's new Roman religion. And uh, basically it evolved for over a thousand years. It got more and more complex, uh, more, more and more fancy, and farther and farther from the way that Yeshua taught, quite simply. And uh, actually, if you look at the, the Roman priesthood, it's, a, it's an interesting hybrid um, it's, it's, it's somewhat based on like ideas of priesthood from the Old Testament and Levitical priesthood that are just kind of appropriated over to uh, Roman priests. And it's also somewhat based on pagan concepts of priesthood. So, for instance, the, uh, the Pope 
in um, the Roman Catholic Church, he's not called the Kohen Hagedol, the high priest, but he is called the Pontifus Maximus, which was the old Roman term for the Caesar, who is regarded as the high priest of the pagan religions in the Roman Empire. So you kind of see this really interesting mixture in, um, in the Roman concept of priesthood. In the 1500s, the, uh, the reformers emerged and the Anabaptists emerged. They were two separate movements. In fact, the Anabaptists were persecuted and sometimes outright murdered by the reformers, but they did have some things in common. The reformers and the Anabaptists in the 1500s both championed something called the priesthood of all believers. And basically, that idea speaks for itself. Every believer is a priest. So it's no longer a clergy-laity caste system where the clergy are priests and the laity are not. Every believer is a priest and can function as a priest. Uh, this was something that was championed by the early reformers and the early Anabaptists. However, I will make a somewhat radical proposal to you. I propose to you that even though the reformers and Anabaptists professed the priesthood of all believers, it was something they supported with their lips, it wasn't something that really worked out on a very functional level for the most part in terms of how Reformed and Anabaptist churches did community. Let's say if they had a meeting. I'll, uh, I'll, give, you, I'll give you an example. Let's, just, um, let's profile what the job description of a Roman priest was and then what the job description of a Reformed or Anabaptist or Protestant pastor in general, what his job description was and is. Um, a Roman priest, actually, why don't you just shout that out to me? What are, what, what's, what are some of the things that a Roman priest does? What's expected of him in his job? He can forgive sin. Forgive sin. And correlatively, uh, have sins confessed to him, right? Do confessional. What else? Yeah, preach. Give a homily. What's that? Yeah, administer the sacraments. Okay, yeah, baptism would be a sacrament. Uh, what would be some others? Buried and married. Buried and married. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, for sure. Those are some of them. Um, here, I'll, I'll list them for you. And just, just listen for the similarity between the job description of a Roman priest and a Protestant pastor. And maybe even a Messianic rabbi. Lead worship services, give homilies or sermons, baptize, visit the sick, hear confession of sin, officiate in marriages and funerals, represent God, and represent the church. That's basically the job description of Roman priest. And interestingly enough, that job description transferred almost letter for letter to the early Reformed and Anabaptist pastors. What is, a, what is a Protestant pastor expected to do? Lead worship services, preach, baptize, visit the sick. I don't know, maybe not hear confession of sin so much. We've kind of moved a bit past that one. Officiate at marriages and funerals, represent God and represent the church. That's a pastor's job just as much as a priest's job. Kind of interesting. And with the advent of Messianic Judaism in the last half century or so, um, in most congregations, I would say that uh, a Messianic rabbi's job description is pretty much identical. So if you go to your average service, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're at a Catholic Mass or a Protestant service, the, the, the clergy's job is going to have some similarities there, I would suggest to you. Um, actually, I think this is kind of ironic. Like, okay, sometimes people, you'll, you'll, you'll meet people and you'll be talking with a believer and they'll be like, oh, you're doing that stuff from, from the law? That's Old Covenant. Oh, that's Old Covenant. And, um, you know, okay, Maybe some of it is Old Covenant. But when you look at your typical Protestant church, the clergy, laity, caste system that's there and the way they meet with the pastor doing everything is really Old Covenant too. It looks very much like the Levitical priest system. So next time someone says, well, that's Old Covenant, just say, well, your whole idea of a pastor is Old Covenant too. <laughs> No, it's, it's, a, it's one of those examples, I think, where sometimes a, we can't, we, you know, we're looking at the spec, but we kind of, we forget about the railroad tie stuck uh, in our own eye socket. Um, or another, another example would be sometimes people would see practicing the Torah as being bondage. And quite frankly, sometimes I think the way, um, 
the Christian system is designed where basically no one's allowed to do anything without the pastor's permission, maybe that has a bit of bondage to it too. Sometimes there's a control element there too. So there are, there are some parallels. So anyway, I, I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just saying that to like just look at things and be like, honestly, I wonder if we've arrived yet as the body of Messiah. I wonder if we still have a ways to go. I wonder if there are areas where Yeshua is still calling us to change and to be restored back to the, his original way. And, and that would be my revolutionary proposition. Let's go back to doing things Yeshua's way. Um, I can't help but notice that like Yeshua chose laymen to lead his movement. Um, the word laity simply means the people. Did you know that? Sir, so if you're a lay person, it means you're a person. <laughs> you're one of the people. That's a good thing. You never want to be anything but one of the people. If you're ever in any, any role of leadership, you never want to be anything but one of the people. If you ever get to the point where you're not one of the people, you just basically made yourself irrelevant and not very helpful, in my opinion. If you, if you do, like, if you profile Yeshua's guys, you'll see that they had no titles. They never went to an academic seminary as such. They weren't ordained by a denomination. These guys were hard-working, blue-collar guys, mostly from lower-end, middle-class backgrounds. And did you notice that after Yeshua called them and trained them and sent them, they didn't all start insisting that people call them pastor so-and-so? or rabbi so-and-so, or father so-and-so. They were still brothers. They were still one of the people. And that word, that's the word for laity. They stayed lay people. Could it be that that is Yeshua's way? Could it be that that is the pattern in the early Yeshua movement, and that could be the pattern today? And to say that, like, I, I'm not against advanced education. I'm not against training institutions, right? It's like there's a lot of good in that, and there's a place for it. But at the same time, I wonder if it was really the way Yeshua operated when he trained men to advance the cause of his kingdom. It's, it's something to think about. I also wonder, like in the book of Revelation, uh, we've discussed this in chapters, what is it, 18 and 19, there's a prophetic call to, quote, come out of her, my people, talking about a system that is a Rome-based system, right? Sits on the city, that sits on seven hills, that's Rome. And I wonder, like, I, I think it was good. I think the Reformers and the early Anabaptists had the right idea. Let's return to doing things by the book. Let's go back to being like the early church. Let's leave the Roman system behind. But again, I wonder, did we, did we carry that to its conclusion yet? Or is that work of restoration still in process? I, I think it's still in process. So anyway, um, that's just kind of, that's a historical overview of priesthood in Israel and in the Christian church, um, which brings us up to today, basically. Um, I just want to talk practically now for a couple of minutes about what does it look like that you're a priest and um, how can we function as priests? In a, this is going to be where the rubber meets the road, really. Um, yeah, like, what, is a, what does a priest do? Really, what does a priest do? Like, what's a priest's job description? What is our dis job description as a kingdom of priests? Um, the Hebrew term, as we mentioned, for priest is Kohen. And here's something really nifty. Every Hebrew word belongs to a family of Hebrew words. So every Hebrew word isn't a standalone word. It's related to a grouping of words that are similar. And when you look at the family of Hebrew words that it comes from, it'll help you to understand it better. I think sometimes we as people are like that. Um, sometimes, if you, uh, if you like, go to someone's family reunion, um, let's say Charlotte. Let's say that we go to a Charlotte's family reunion. We'll be like, wow, you know, I, this is like a whole bunch of Charlottes running around. Like, they're all kind of the same. They all kind of talk the same. They all eat pierogies, like that kind of thing, eh? Um, there are cases when you, if you look at someone's family, you'll better be able to understand them. And uh, for some of us, you know, that's something to be proud of. If you go to a family reunion of mine, you'll probably be like, wow, they all talk really loud and wave their hands all the time just like Izzy. Uh, maybe that would be an example for my family. I don't know. And we all love pierogies too. Um, sometimes we're not very much like our family. Some of us have been on a very long journey where we've had to leave stuff from our families behind. So for, for some of us, we wouldn't want our friends to go to our family reunion. And if they did, they'd be like, wow, you are really not very much like your family. Um, I think for some of us, that's the way it is. But when it comes to Hebrew, it's like if you look at the family of words that a Hebrew word is from, you'll better be able to understand the word. So I am going to share with you 
an insight here. This is based on the research of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. He was a famous rabbi and Hebrew scholar from the 1800s. Um, as a result of his writing and his leadership, conservative Judaism developed. So he's very well known in the Jewish world and respected. And in this etymological dictionary, based on Rabbi Hirsch's research, it's pointed out that the Hebrew word Kohen is related to three other words. The first word it's related to is Kana. Everybody say Kana. So Kahan means to act as a priest. Kana means to name somebody or to be named. It's spelled in Hebrew uh, Kaf Nun He. So what, what's the correlation that we can draw? Acting as a priest is related to a name, someone, someone being named. I would suggest to you that this teaches us that to act as a priest means to act in a person's name, to come in a person's name, to, uh, to act on their behalf or function as their representative. Does that sound like a, a logical parallel there? Okay, um, two more Hebrew root words are kanan and kun, and they're related to kahan. Uh, kanan is spelled kaf nun nun, and kun is spelled kaf vav nun. And both of these words mean to lead in a positive way, to be a positive influence. Uh, does anybody know what the Hebrew word for yes is? Ken. Ken. Okay, yes, you do. The Hebrew word for yes is ken. Everybody say ken. ken. So if you know any guys named Ken, you can expect them to be pretty positive guys, based on the, no, just, just kidding about that. But um, that word ken is from the same root as the word for priest. So ken means yes. So a priest is like someone who gives leadership in a positive way, who's a positive influence in their community, like a catalyst or an initiator, that kind of idea. So as a priest, in Yeshua's priestly order, that's you. You carry Yeshua's name. You are sent in his name. You act on his behalf or in his stead. You function as a representative of God's anointed king. You are a leader in the sense of being a positive influence, an initiator, a, a catalyst in your family and in your community. All of these ideas are wrapped up in the Hebrew, the bigger Hebrew understanding of a Kohen or a priest. So that's the what. That's like what you are and uh, some, some idea of what your, uh, what your role just naturally is. This is built into our spiritual DNA. Let's talk about the how for a second. Before God said to Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, he said, if. He made it conditional. He said, if you two things, if you listen, if you shema to my voice, and if you guard my covenant. Those are the two conditional conditions there. He said, if you do these two things, then you are going to end up being a kingdom of priests. So based on that, um, how could we say that? Let's say that you're a diesel truck. Everyone just pretend for a second that you're a diesel truck, okay? Does anybody want to make a diesel truck noise? No? I like making diesel truck noises for tears. I could try, just for kicks. Be like... Does that sound like a diesel truck idling? Anyway, um, maybe something like that. But anyway, let's say that your diesel truck, this is like your engine under the hood, okay? This is the diesel, diesel engine that makes you run, that gives you your power to be that priest. Listening to his voice, guarding his covenant. That's the engine under your priestly hood. So let's just break those two ideas down for a second. Listening to his voice, that's like, on a practical level, that's like staying in Yeshua, staying in Yeshua's word. And when you do that, he's gonna, he's gonna be in you. His word is gonna be in you, and he's gonna be operating through you in that priestly capacity. So just a really practical application, I would encourage you, like, try and get in the Gospels every day. Even if you just read a verse or a very short passage, but stay in the gospel, stay really uh, like Yeshua-oriented, where he's the center of who you are. He's at the core of your identity. If you can, like, just get in the red letters, even if it's just one sentence from the master's lips. Do that every day. That'll help you um, listen to his voice. And then secondly, guarding and growing in our covenant relationship with him. I'll give, you a couple, I'll give you a couple examples of what springs from our covenant relationship with God. Um, in 
1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, Paul says to a community, you can all prophesy. He also says in that context that prophecy, that's when you speak to someone to build them up. When you speak to them to challenge or encourage them. When you speak to them to comfort them. And he said, this is something that you can all do. And this is a gift that every one of us should really want. We should earnestly desire. That is a priestly function. When you are functioning prophetically, you're hearing God's word, and you're, you're, you're speaking it to other people as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And um, that's a priestly function. You could say you're speaking for God to people. Uh, the opposite flip side of that is speaking to God for people, which is what? Prayer. That's right. I mean, this is really, this is really simple, right? But it's like, these, these are priestly functions that go all the way back to Adam. And uh, that, really, that really is, I don't know, that really gets me thinking. But um, anyway, ex another example of that is in the New Covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So like my daughter, if she's entered into a covenant relationship with God, she knows him. She's hearing his voice and she's able to function as a priest as a result. Um, here are a couple other ways. That's like, you could see that's kind of the speech side. Speaking to God for people in prayer. Speaking for God to people in prophecy. There's also the side of acting for Him. Examples would be when you lay your hands on someone and you pray for their healing in Yeshua's name. You are, you are acting in a priestly capacity. You are, you are ministering healing to that person in Yeshua's name. Uh, when you, let's say as a husband, when you lay your hands on your wife and you bless her and you pray for her, you're functioning in a priestly capacity. Wives, when you do that and pray for your husbands and your children, you are functioning in that priestly capacity. I love how simple that is. When we pray for our neighborhoods, we are functioning as priests of Yeshua. We're beginning to wield that priestly authority that he's given us. There are lots of examples. Like when you begin to think creatively, when you just smile at the cashier, you're actually functioning in a priestly capacity. Why? Because you represent Yeshua, and Yeshua really likes that cashier. And he wants to smile at that cashier. But he needs a body. He kind of needs a face to smile through. So, or when, you give, when someone's just feeling down, and you just give them a big hug, and you just encourage them. You're, like a, you're a hugging priest. You're a smiling priest. You're, you're, you're representing Yeshua. So, I mean, you could go wild and you could really start to kind of open it up. But that's the idea, right? So next time you smile at somebody, you're, you're a priest. You're a smiling priest. It's kind of maybe the bigger idea there. When you, when you drive out demons, when you command demons to leave situations or to leave, leave people's um, lives, etc., you are functioning as a priest of Yeshua. You're wielding that authority. So there are lots of examples. Uh, last thing we could talk about, that's like on an individual level, kind of some things about how we can grow in our priestly capacities as individuals, um, some ways that that can work out on a practical level. I want to talk about how this can work on a community level. Um, there are ways to structure a community. There are ways to gather that encourage people to function as the priests that they are. And then there are ways that kind of stifle people functioning as a priest or block them from being able to, um, to do that. And uh, we want to structure our community in such a manner that everybody's able to function as a priest. We want to gather in ways that everybody has to function as a priest or this thing just doesn't go anywhere and it's really boring. And uh, we've been talking lately for the last month or two about how I've been studying a lot about the house church way of gathering, or some people also call it organic or simple church, and we're going to be having some discussions about that. I think this would be another great example of this. There are, there are ways that we will be able to structure our community and how we gather that will enable people to function as priests. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I want to um, move towards some changes in that regard. I'll give you a couple of really simple examples of that. When, we have, when, when a community has smaller gatherings, when their primary place of community life is a small gathering, automatically everyone is more able to participate and everybody has a voice. When you get past a certain level, everybody just can't participate and everybody just can't talk. Uh, usually that number is around 10 or 12, um, they, they would say. When you hit past 10 or 12, some people are going to end up not really being a part of stuff so much on a practical level. So uh, oftentimes smaller gatherings are the best um, place for priests to function. 
Um, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for larger gatherings. If you look at the early Yeshua movement, they often had smaller gatherings in homes, and they also had larger gatherings, often when the apostles had a, had a message for the community or uh, different things like that. Um, in terms of what you do when you gather, um, the, I, I really value having gatherings that are relatively open. If you have a gathering that is 100% scripted, crammed with liturgy, rigidly structured, you're really going to stifle that functioning priesthood from operating. Um, I think that's often the case in, in churches and in Messianic synagogues. Uh, we have a certain script service, and it's really scripted, has a lot of liturgy, and it's just rigidly structured, and the result is often we don't get to function as the priests that we are. So it's like when we, when we remove those controls, when we open things up, when we make it simpler, when we go to smaller gatherings, we'll often find that the Holy Spirit is freer to move and Yeshua is able to operate in that priestly capacity through each person. So I know the way we've been gathering as a community hasn't, I don't feel like we've experienced that dynamic 100%. You know, we've tried to stay somewhat open and interactive, but at the same time, I think that's an area where I, I want to I wanna, I wanna change, actually. I want to open things up a little more. So... Um, that's why we're kind of having these talks for the last couple of Shabbats about that. Um, I, let's, um, to finish this talk, let's look at that job description of uh, Catholic priests, Protestant pastors, Messianic Jewish rabbis, and just say, what would that look like for every one of us as a priest to have this job description? How, we, how could we create a culture in our community where everybody is like, that's what I do? Because that's the, that's the objective, eh? We want to create a culture in our community where this is everybody's job description, where we all do this. I'm just going to go down that list here. Uh, the first one is leading worship services. If you have a small gathering based in a home, basically anybody can facilitate that. Anybody can act as a priest and facilitate a small gathering in Yeshua's name based in a home. Um, giving homilies or sermons. Basically, in a smaller gathering, anyone is able to hear from God and to give, give a message from Him. And Paul talked about both men and women prophesying in the early assembly. So we know that when it comes to that prophetic gift and women sharing what they're hearing from God, that's entirely legit also. And that's, that's something that's welcomed and wonderful. Uh, baptizing. In our community, what I'd like to see is if through your influence someone comes to Yeshua, you get to baptize that person. You get to immerse that person in water. And that can be something that a man or a woman can do. That is your job description as a priest. Um, visiting the sick, that is your job description as a priest. What did Yeshua say? I was sick, and you visited me. He didn't just say that to the clergy. He said that to everybody. So visiting the sick is not the job description of a priest, pastor, or rabbi. That is the job description of every believer. And, pr and laying hands on the sick and praying for them. What did he say? He didn't say, these signs shall follow those who are in clergy positions. He said, these signs shall follow those who believe in my name. One of them is, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Hearing confession of sin. That's something anyone can do. You can say, how are you doing? And if someone wants to say, you know what, I'm struggling. I have some sin and I need to come clear of it. Go to anyone in the, in the believing community and do that. Because you're a priest. Um, officiating at marriages and funerals. Uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a big topic. I'm not getting, get, going to get into all of it today. But um, this whole concept we have in the Protestant world of the pastor marrying people and the pastor burying people, I, I can kind of understand on a functional level why it works that way. But that's actually an idea we get from the Catholic Church. That's not an idea we get from the early Yeshua movement. So... That's why, for instance, like I've had people call me up and be like, Hi, uh, can you marry us? And I'm like, I don't even know you. Why would I marry you? And not to mention, God's the one who marries people. So, for instance, in Genevieve's in my wedding ceremony, we didn't have like a clergy person marry us. God married us. And Genevieve's dad, dad at MC'd the event, and we had the blessings of our elders, and we did have like an order of ceremony and all of those things. And, um, but that's the way we did it. That's, that's often how it's done in, like in, in the Hebrew, Hebrew world. And um, actually, that's also how it's done in the Quaker world. It's, it's very interesting to read about how Quakers do their weddings. I would encourage you to uh, maybe read up on that sometime. And then the last two here, representing God. 
As a priest, you represent God. That's a big job description, hey? Get up in the morning, go to work. I represent God today. Wow. And also, representing the church. So you represent our community. Like, okay, you know, I do some PR, right? I do some public relations stuff. Like, I go to the ministerials on a, on a monthly basis. If any of you guys want to go to the ministerials, you're more than welcome to go for me or go with me, just so you know. But I, so, you know, I do some PR work, but I'm not the guy who has to do that or the only guy, I hope, who does that because you represent our community of disciples as a priest. So let's, uh, let's just continue to think about that, talk about that, ask the questions, and, um, and kind of like grow in a culture where every one of us function as a priest and we fight for the right to do that. Because very often as the people of God, we've just kind of, we've just gone slack and lazy and passive and we've just given away our birthright to function as priests. We just say, you know what, let's just um, pick a man to lead us and choose a pastor to be the over-functioning member of the body and make him the priest and just give him the job description and we can all just kind of sit back and relax a little bit and let him do the, do the work of the kingdom. No. You know, we're going we're gonna to take that right back, every one of us as believers, and we're going to say, that is my calling as a priest. That is my holy privilege and responsibility in the kingdom to function in that capacity and to glorify God in that regard. And uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be really fun just continuing to like, develop that culture in our community because we're going to have new believers in our community and I'm pumped about this because we get to like, take people who are going to be blank slates and we get to like, teach them. We get to like, introduce a culture to them so we, they, like, they're not going to get churched. They're not going to be churched. People are going to come into our community as new believers and... I'm so pumped about that. We just get to teach them Yeshua's ways. We get to model to them what a Torah lifestyle looks like. And we get to really like just empower them and set them free to be priests in God's kingdom from day one. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.